TED Audio Collective. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds, thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magic Write is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. Hello, everyone. You're listening to After Hours. I'm Felix. And I'm Mihir. It's great to be back, Felix. We're back. We're back. Does it feel like a long time? It does. Happy New Year. Great to be back. I think my optimism, my happiness comes from this moment, which is deja vu on the one hand, but I really do think the pandemic is over. (laughs) (laughs) It's deja vu all over again. It's almost been a lost year. There's this huge amount of optimism and it feels like it's coming back. But you're right, Felix, this time it's real. (laughs) But we are missing our dear friend, Young Me. Yes. So she is going to be taking a little bit of a break, but we are going to soldier on the two of us for a little bit. And then we're going to invite some friends and it should be great fun. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Does this mean, Felix, we have to stop making fun of her? Mm, I don't think so. I think she would appreciate (laughs) our making fun of her, which is, you know, such a big part of the show. (laughs) All right, great. So what do we got today, Felix? So I would like to talk about the labor market. Yeah. Almost half a million jobs in January. Let's talk about it. And inflation and all the other pieces of the pie. Yeah. What did you bring? I thought we could also talk a little bit about earnings season. It's been like a fun, crazy month of companies reporting. And these amazing swings in valuations, right? It's been crazy. And it's connected to the first topic because of the inflation concerns and everything else. So yeah, this should be fun. All right, Felix, you want to talk about the labor market? Yeah, to me, it's very interesting. There are these views of the job market that we've gotten used to. So, for instance, this term, the big resignation, is everywhere. Right. There's a storyline that says we were stuck at home for so long. People worked under really difficult circumstances, and now... There's mental health issues, people are tired, people are rethinking what they want out of life. Right. And as a result, we see people quit like never before. And when you then look more closely at the data, it's actually two very different stories that get mixed. One is the story of mostly professional white-collar workers who were at home. Output was amazingly stable. People worked from home and they did as good a job as they did when they were in the office with the really important twist that it took them between 20 and 25% longer to create the same kind of work. And so that's just unsustainable. But if you look at quit rates, who quits, in particular in, say, in financial services or in professional services more generally, quit rates are absolutely unremarkable. Right. Absolute numbers tend to be high, but that's just because... The economy is in fluctuation all the time. So if I tell you, oh, last month, 3 million people quit, you think, oh, my God, 3 million people quit. But actually, every month, on average, for a long period of time, 3 million people quit. Right. And more important than their quitting is 
what do they do next? Do they leave the labor force? Do they take new jobs? People quit, mostly restaurants, hotels. And the story there is people are going to better paid jobs. So think of two segments of the labor market, one relatively stable, but people are exhausted, and one traditionally not very well paid, lots of mm. opportunities to find better paying jobs. Is the segment as a whole healthy? Yes, absolutely. The number of jobs in restaurants and hotels and hospitality grew by about 2 million last year. So it's one in three jobs created in 2021 is in that particular sector. Yes, people are quitting, but the sector is doing well. Right. In a way, there's so much to be excited about. That's we right. have a remarkably robust labor market and it's working and it's churning and it's resulting in higher wages. Yes. It's a sign of tremendous economic growth. Yeah. And Something to be really excited about. Mm -hmm. So much of the action in the labor market is actually happening in this lower skilled segment. And it's really great news. Yeah. And it's actually some really significant wage gains as well. Leading out of the Great Recession towards the pandemic, you saw many of these positive elements. And frankly, I was a little nervous. Would it come back? Would the people who don't make so much money, would they again benefit from wage growth? And you see on average, it's about 5% wage growth. And then you ask, where is it particularly strong? Right. And it's exactly in the right places. It's <laughs> people who switch jobs, people who are lower skilled, people who are non-white, and women. It's a very sunny picture. And then you look at the polls of consumer confidence, or you look at the polls about how the president is doing handling the economy. Yeah. And the answer is not so sunny. <laughs> so why is that? We should be celebrating the economy, and we don't. That's right. And one big reason for that, I think, has got to be this underlying thing that's happening at the same time, which is just remarkable spikes in inflation yeah. that people are looking at and fearing and maybe obsessing over. <laughs> but the numbers are staggering. They're 40-year highs. And then people pay a lot of attention to that, and maybe not as much to the underlying question of the relative growth of wages mm -hmm, and prices. Mm -hmm. yeah. What you really care about is, are wages in real terms growing? And as you point out, Felix, for a bunch of folks, particularly at the lower end of the skill distribution, it is pretty good news. Yeah. On net, not just wages going up, but wages are going up more than prices. But then there's going to be folks who are not going to be that happy <laughs> with really, really high prices. Mm -hmm. And of course, this is again, a manifestation of a very strong economy. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so the question is really twofold. One is, and I know people really don't like this word, is it still kind of transitory? Yeah. Are we still dealing with this really big shock to demand from lots of fiscal stimulus that's been unevenly distributed across goods and services, plus supply chain problems? I'm going to label that mm -hmm. transitory. Mm -hmm. Or... Is there something longer lasting going on? And this is, of course, where the connection to wages comes in. Mm -hmm. So now if you have workers asking for better pay because they anticipate greater inflation, then we get into this wage price spiral that everybody fears that is really hard to deal with. What's your sense about Fed policy so far? Well, I mean, it hasn't been much so far. It's just been a lot of talk, right? <laughs> but just to be clear, yes. what's on tap is really two types of things. One is they can raise the short rate, yep. the rate for borrowing over short periods of time. And they have been hinting at raising it several times this year. In March. And potentially right. in March. And yeah. I think that will happen. And then the larger issue is this so-called balance sheet effect, which is they will start to sell securities 
and in that process, try to influence the long interest rates, which of course matters for mortgages and for everything else. And expectations are pretty clear that there are going to be some big changes. Yeah. In one sense, I think it's kind of good news because we've been living with this aberrational, really low interest rate environment for so long. The bad news is, just to go back to our previous discussion, if the economy is buzzing and doing great, but primarily for some of these transitory reasons, then if you pile on a bunch of rate hikes you can get into a recession. <laughs> That's like a Federal Reserve-caused recession. So to me, it feels like I do want to see rates rise gradually over time. But I do wonder if they do something dramatic in March, like some people are talking about, like a big increase in March, then I think we're going to run the risk of actually taking this really strong economy that may only be reflecting somewhat transitory things and actually kind of killing it. So that's the real mm -hmm. pressure point for the next couple of months. Yeah. And it could be an interesting break in Fed policy. If you look over the long run, it used to be that the Fed would respond very slowly to changes in the business environment. Right. Basically reading the tea leaves, waiting to see some of the effect. After the successful fight of inflation in the 1970s and 1980s, what you see is that the Fed responds much more quickly and much more aggressively. Right. The intuition is that you put out the fire before it becomes a big problem for the economy. And for the current situation, of course, you don't quite know. Exactly. <laughs> you hold the line that we've gotten used to, that short and quick responses are more promising or is the older policy up to the 1970s the right one where there's just so much uncertainty around what's going to happen and what inflation levels will be that really you got to tap the brakes and then wait and see a little bit how do expectations move, how do expectations influence price levels. And I think we don't know. And I find it fascinating, professional observers of the Fed. Yeah. If you look at their predictions, how many rate hikes we will see in 2022, there's everything from two to maybe eight, nine, <laughs> ten right. or so, which in essence says probably we just don't have any idea what's going to happen. Right. I think the other angle on this, Felix, that I find totally fascinating is because we've lived in a non-inflationary world for so long, the politics of this also get crazy. Yeah. And we start to go into boogeyman territory, which is, you know, this is either <laughs> yes. the result of big greedy companies who are raising prices. We need to think about price controls. We need to think about antitrust. We're going to need to mm -hmm. take away the gas tax yeah. because they're legitimately worried for their political future or, you know, really worried about the midterm elections in the U.S. Mm -hmm. That's the mm -hmm. next piece to watch, which is will we start doing some stupid things politically because we are so obsessed with this kind of specter of inflation. I think you're exactly right. The change from zero inflation to now, all of a sudden after 20, 30 years, we have inflation. Mm -hmm. It's really big. And it comes at a moment when we worry about any trust anyway. Right. And so it exactly. all sort of gets mixed into one big policy cake that is going to be baked at some point in time. <laughs> How well it will taste, I'm not exactly sure. I'm not exactly optimistic. Yeah, definitely a topic to keep in mind. If there's a surefire way to wake up feeling fresh after a night of enjoying alcohol, it's with Zbiotics. Zbiotics pre-alcohol probiotic drink is the world's first genetically engineered probiotic. It was invented by PhD scientists to tackle rough mornings after drinking. Here's how it works. When you drink, alcohol gets converted into a toxic byproduct in the gut. It's this byproduct, not dehydration, that's to blame for your rough next day. Zbiotics produces an enzyme to break this byproduct down. 
Just remember to make Zbiotics your first drink of the night, drink responsibly, and you'll feel your best tomorrow. Go to zbiotics.com/afterhours to get 15% off your first order when you use afterhours at checkout. Zbiotics is backed with 100% money back guarantee. So if you're unsatisfied for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. Remember to head to zbiotics.com/afterhours and use the code afterhours at checkout for 15% off. Thank you Zbiotics for sponsoring this episode and our good times. So, me here, the joys of earning season. Yeah, no kidding. And what an earning season it's been, right? <laughs> so, when we last talked, it was mid-December and life was fairly calm. And yes. then in part as a reflection of the segment that we just did all about concerns about interest rates, the market really fell out of bed and was really quite dramatic. Yep. And the Nasdaq was down as much as 10 or 12%. And you see these remarkable drops that are just kind of inexplicable. Like, you know, when you think about a 20% drop, you think to yourself, okay, 20% drop would, must have really been bad news. But then when you say 20% drop, and that was $220 billion of market yeah. cap, <laughs> <laughs> yes. it's just kind of mind-boggling that that could happen in a day. Yeah. One of the ones that really struck me was a contrast. And it was the contrast between Disney and Netflix. Okay. Two companies that are really fun to watch. Yeah. So the first thing that happened is Netflix came out with seemingly an okay report that didn't miss by that much. But their forecast for user growth was really light in the first quarter of 2022, something like 2 or 3%. And the stock effectively lost a third of its value. Yeah, yeah, really amazing. <laughs> really amazing. Yeah. In part, it's a reminder the companies that benefited from the pandemic, even though you know it's the pandemic, it's unusual, but these growth expectations that get built into market caps in ways that are really hard to justify over the long term. That's exactly right. And that was one of the pieces of the story that I loved, which is exactly your story, which is yeah. so-called pandemic stocks that had just been priced to maybe beyond perfection and massive growth expectations. And just a slight lowering of that causes this remarkable cratering. <laughs> yeah. But then the other piece that really struck me was the contrast with Disney, where they did extremely well with their results on the streaming side, but also on the theme park side. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And the really interesting contrast to me is that Netflix now is roughly worth what it was three and a half years ago. Yeah. It hasn't moved very much at all. Yeah. And Disney is going strong. And the neat thing about it is people starting now to talk about content durability. So people saying, okay, look, Netflix, you did Bridgerton, you did Squid Games. Yeah. Like amazing things they did. <laughs> yeah. If you think about just those two properties. But what are you left with at the end of the year? <laughs> In contrast to somebody like Disney who hits it out of the park with Encanto, this is massive, massive hit that went way beyond people's expectations. But it's durable. So people are really emphasizing in the streaming setting, I think, something that has been underemphasized, which is what is the durability of the content spend? Yeah. Are you getting a long-lived asset or not? And with Encanto, you can imagine the music and the toys and the theme park and the everything <laughs> that you can imagine, right? And with Squid Games, the question is, well, what are we going to do with that property? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that was the story that really captured my attention. The other part that's so interesting, we now have pretty reliable data 
how subscriber growth is really sensitive to the different services having a hit. Right. You see these big additions if you have something like Squid Game or if you have a Disney show that does really well. Right. But it also means that people are not super loyal. Yeah. <laughs> it's really easy to get in and get out. And guess what people really do? This idea that people pick their winner and then they stick with their winner. That seems to be less true than we had anticipated. Yeah. What was catching your attention, Felix? I was pretty surprised when Amazon, for the first time, released its ad numbers. Yeah. There was a sense that it had built an advertising operation that was quite formidable. But I was really surprised when I saw the numbers. Last year, it was the $30 billion business. It's bigger now than YouTube. <laughs> I mean, imagine. Yeah. It's like a bigger app business than YouTube, and it grows 30% a year or so. It's roughly the size of Prime. It speaks to this bigger issue, the importance of first-party data. Mm. Think about Meta or Facebook getting hammered right. as a result of the changes in privacy rules at Apple. If you're Amazon, you have two almost unbeatable advantages you have consumer who are intent on purchasing products. Yeah. As we know from the Google app model, that's valuable. And then guess what? The moment you put in the search box what you're looking for, I have a pretty good idea what you're going to buy or what you're interested in buying. We've become so super sophisticated on the ad side. And at the same time, you just wonder, is the old trick to look at the search box Maybe that's more powerful than anything else we have at this moment. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And the distinction between advertising models like Facebook's and somebody's like Amazon, I think, is really coming out. And we saw that with Google results as well. The two other things that really struck me about this, Felix, is one, it's interesting when companies begin reporting something yeah. in a new way. That decision, yes. Right, that decision itself is super interesting, right? Super so interesting. even, for example, with Meta, they really broke out advertising versus virtual reality this time. Yeah. And they were like, we're losing a lot of money in virtual reality in the meta piece of this business, and we expect to continue to. So you're really sending signals in that way. The second piece that really struck me was AWS is like still just rocking. Yeah. It is just yeah. this remarkable beast inside Amazon that's growing at 40% a year and shows no sign of stopping. And you see now other companies emulating, right? It's basically what Walmart is doing now, building an advertising business thinking of the stores as really the engines of profitability and online grocery mm. as a loss leader, as a slim margin kind of business. Yeah. Just like the marketplace at Amazon is in the end a slim margin kind of business. And so you wonder, say like 10 years, looking back at how we thought about e-commerce as a real opportunity. Yeah, Maybe it's not. <laughs> it's amazing in the sense that it changes consumer behavior. Right. It changes how we choose, how we shop. But as a business opportunity, maybe it's just miserable. Maybe it's not really a business you want to be in. I think that's really fascinating, Felix. And maybe if you're in it, you better have something alongside it that allows you to mm -hmm. really monetize all of its benefits. So this is your story, I think, about like in-store versus online. I think you're absolutely right. Do you see a day when there's significant pressure on Amazon to spin off AWS? That is a fascinating question. I don't think people are raising it today. Those kinds of concerns happen typically when people start to stumble. 
Because then people start to ask all kinds of questions. People ask questions, why do these businesses belong together? Yeah. And so you could imagine a world where that e-commerce business starts to stumble. And in fact, you know, there are pieces of the e-commerce piece that didn't look great this year as well. Yeah. And maybe yeah. in the future, people will ask that question. I don't know, Felix, what is the justification for keeping it together? Yeah. Now, the only justification that I can really think of is that somewhere in the background, there's some virtue in having this large cloud business that really came out of some of your e-commerce efforts initially. Yeah. That's a historic reason. That's a historical justification. That's right? a historical that's, justification, that's, right? That's yeah. not a rationale yeah. on an ongoing basis. Yeah. And I find your observation that companies are pressed to think about these spin-offs when they're not doing well, when one business is really in trouble. Yeah. Even that is not obvious why that should be. Because the opportunity to unlock... No, for sure. You're absolutely right. But that actually is interesting because if you think about Andy Jassy or Bezos as the decision makers and as being decision makers who no one will question, yeah. <laughs> then he can be forward looking and just say, I want to split it and do it. Yeah. And I think that could be really, really wise. Yeah. So my other story that really caught my attention bears a little bit of relationship to this, Felix. Oh, okay. Which is I was struck by two companies, and again, like a tale of two companies, kind of like Disney and Netflix, but my two companies are two weird companies, which is UPS and Twitter. <laughs> you might never put UPS and Twitter together. That's not exactly an obvious pair, but yeah. Yes, so I'm here's listening. what struck me about their reports this quarter. And they kind of went undernoticed, but UPS just hit it out of the park in a lot of different ways yeah. on e-commerce, on really cutting back the kinds of businesses they do that are not profitable, really focusing on profitability, delivered a bang out quarter. Twitter, not so much. Mm -hmm. Tough mm -hmm. quarter, didn't yep. quite meet expectations. But the fascinating thing to me is they both did something very dramatic alongside these moves, which is UPS increased their dividend by 50%. Uh -huh, uh -huh. So yeah. now you might say, well, okay, increase the dividend, who cares? First off, UPS is like a steady eddy, like 3% a year, blah, oh, blah, yeah. blah. Right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and they just said, we're upping our dividend by 50%. And at the same time, what did Twitter do amidst this kind of disappointing results? They announced a really massive increase to buybacks, like up to $4 billion. And they did a $2 billion one right away. Yeah. I was just so struck by that contrast <laughs> and the interesting market reaction, which is the reaction to the dividends was, wow, they just are telling us they believe they can sustain the kind of profitability they have mm -hmm, mm -hmm. for a long time. Yeah. And the market really appreciating that. And then the buyback, not so much. <laughs> not so much. Yeah. And I just thought this feels like a turning point with rates rising in the way we think about dividends and buybacks. And Maybe this long infatuation we've had with buybacks. Because I confess, when I saw the Twitter announcement, I thought to myself, it's like IBM all over again. Oh, Falling business oh. underneath it, but we're going to just do this kind of buyback craziness all the way down. Yeah. It's also the intuition that you have about the two businesses matches these moves almost perfectly. Mm. Social media, of course, is such a quickly evolving, dramatic space. Yeah. And Twitter just feels old and dated and out of ideas. The most amazing change is now that it's a little more integrated with Instagram. Right. Who cares? <laughs> I think maybe Facebook was like that for the first time five, six years ago, where right. you feel like nothing is happening anymore. Right. There are all of these changes, but they're insider changes. Power users of these services want this or that or the other thing. But right. in a bigger sense, it just doesn't matter anymore. 
And then contrast that with this idea that you are a powerhouse in local delivery. And oh my God, you're right in the sweet spot. That's exactly right. You actually have the economies of density that make that kind of a business, at least in aspiration, a very steady and a very profitable business. What else did you bring, Felix? I had a family of businesses when PayPal did its earnings release. Yeah. It dragged the entire payment sector down in a really dramatic fashion. So a firm, I think, is down 60% over the last three months. Yeah. SoFi, Block, everyone. In the case of PayPal, I don't really remember at least in the recent past, having seen such a correction to growth expectations. It's really quite remarkable. Yeah. So they wanted to have 750 million users by 2025, right? And so, yeah, 2025 is a stretch out, but it's not like decades out. And now they're telling us it's only going to be a little over 400 million. Right. <laughs> I mean, oh my God, <laughs> what? You were off by how much? So what I find particularly interesting, what's the story now? Yeah. Should you think, oh, I'm buying the dip. And it's all about the penetration of payment services built on digital wallets. Right. And I have to confess, it's a little bit of a mixed story. On the one hand, PayPal is the leader in this space. We have pretty good data from travel mm. where PayPal is larger than Apple, Google, and Samsung combined. So they have a really firm position. But then when you look at, okay, so what can I do if I use the PayPal super app, like what they call the super app, <laughs> you know, some e-commerce and I get some discounts, really? Like that's your best idea? Yeah. I get credit offers. Uh, that seems like a pretty crowded space that is changing in ways that are not super attractive. Of course, you offer crypto like everyone else offers crypto. Right. It's hard for me to have much enthusiasm for any of these ideas. And in the loan products in particular, you see this change in Affirm that one of the reasons why their stock price has fallen so much is that they now move to loans that have low interest. Exactly and right. so maybe you're getting paid sometime in the future, maybe you're not getting paid, which is very different from the original model. Yeah, and especially on Affirm, as you pointed out, first off, they're charging now interest, so they're not all zero-rate loans. Yeah, yeah. They had this remarkable exposure to Peloton, which I don't think people understood. Yeah, like, there was yes. all these oh, yeah. big purchases <laughs> that were coming through Peloton, which we know what has happened to them. But the larger story you're telling, Felix, I think is super interesting. Because fintech had really become this space where no one could do any wrong and where expectations were out of this world. And by the way, this has ripple effects through the venture world and everything else, right? So the whole buy now, pay later world is shaken because of what happened to a firm. And there's hundreds of millions of dollars pouring into VCs on that market alone. And I think it's a reflection that that world is a lot harder to make headway into than people have imagined. Mm -hmm. That's just one example. You compare it to folks like MasterCard and Visa who are just chugging along <laughs> like yes, in quite yeah. a remarkable clip Remarkably and doing right, fine yes. and innovating in interesting ways. Yeah. And it's not entirely clear what this entire promise of fintech is yielding in aggregate. Mm -hmm. As you put it, these product ideas are good, yep. but are they earth shattering in the way that the valuations would suggest? Yeah. It's now very much an open question with PayPal coming back down to earth, but the entire sector, as you point out, is now 60, 70% below its <laughs> It's just remarkable. Yeah. You have to draw from that a real question mark about 
the promise of fintech. Yeah. Well, that'll be another interesting one to watch. Okay, good. So this was yeah. a good earnings season. Yeah, this was fun. And yeah. we didn't even talk about like Peloton and Meta, which were also amazing. Well, we'll come back and talk about that. We'll have lots of companies still reporting, right? So I Indeed. can't wait to hear from Ford. Oh, yeah. Can't wait to hear from Rivian. So there's many stories ahead that we'll absolutely have to talk about. Excellent. All right. Recommendations. Felix, what do you got? Yes, of course. Even in the new year, that's a big part of the show. So my recommendation is a podcast. It's The Economist podcast, Checks and Balance. And they have a recent episode comparing attitudes of Republican voters with attitudes of Democrat voters. Uh And the question is, why is it that liberals and progressives are so much more pessimistic about America than conservatives. And the interesting twist that I really love about what they did is they compare attitudes with what's really true. So the questions are all in the form of when it comes to, say, gay rights in America. Compared to other countries, are we ahead? Are we behind? Are we in the top group? Right. And people give answers how they see America and where they think America stands. And by and large, it's not true across all categories, but by and large, liberals are way too tough on America. Interesting. And I love the dynamic on the podcast also. So it's two people with British accents and the New York bureau chief, an American, Uh and the interplay between seeing America from afar and from the outside and then having someone who really sort of has the domestic perspective. Super interesting. I love the podcast as a whole, but this episode, which is called Left Side Story, is particularly fascinating. Oh, that's great. Having optimism in any political agenda is so important Yeah, because it just resonates with people. It's just so hard to win in a pessimistic vein. Well, so it's been a couple of weeks, so I'm going to go a little crazy. (laughs) Well, what else is new? (laughs) I know. I'm sorry. Crazy means it's more than your usual two when the rules say you have to bring one. And I'm going for three. (laughs) So I have three, but they're all different. (laughs) So it's all okay. So I read a lovely book over break that I thought was really fun. It's by this author, Gary Steingart. And it's called Our Country Friends. Okay. And he is hilarious. And this is the first kind of pandemic novel. So it actually takes place during the pandemic. Five friends are locked in a house in the country and craziness ensues. The great part about it is it's so warm and touching, but also hilarious. And it's a real story about immigrants. Oh, it takes place in the United States? It takes place in the United States, in upstate New York, in Mm -hmm. mid-2020, like in the middle of the pandemic. Yeah. Really fun and just touching in its own way. Um, My second is also very touching. I've previously talked about this writer named Jennifer Senior when she wrote this 9-11 piece about Bobby McElveen. She's got a new one in the Atlantic, and she is two for two. I mean, these pieces are amazing. And this is about friendship and about how, as you get older, friendships matter so much and are yet quite hard. And so it's all about the nature of friendship. Yeah. I think we're contemporary ages. And so she's like channeling <laughs> your thoughts, my thoughts. Yeah. And it's just great. And then the last one is on your UK theme, there's a UK podcast with an American co-host oh. and it's called The Trojan Horse Affair. So the guy who did S-Town, which was this fairly famous podcast, yeah. went to Birmingham and collaborated with a Brit to do this remarkable eight-part podcast. And I drank up the whole thing in a day. Like, I just loved it. But the okay. neat part about it is it's about this scandal in Birmingham. 
but it's also like a buddy movie. These oh. two guys who are making oh. the podcast. Yeah, yeah. And it's about yeah. the meaning of journalism, ultimately. Oh. Okay, I went crazy. That sounds fascinating. Those are my three for you. So this is it for today. Thank you for listening. This was After Hours from the TED Audio Collective. So I'll best you next time. I'll bring in four recommendations. <laughs> there you go. It's going to be a war. The podcast a war will run. be like two and a half hours, <laughs> mostly recommendations. That is the overall thrust of things. You know, why are we even having these first two seconds? Yeah, why? We just go to recommendations right away. That would be great. Support for this show comes from Economist Education. On After Hours, we've discussed how powerful and impactful it can be to use data to share complex stories. And Economist Education has a new course on data storytelling and visualization that I highly recommend. It's super fascinating stuff. And you can discover how to find, collect, and analyze data, harness it to craft a compelling message or narrative. These courses last about two to six weeks. They are online programs designed to empower you. Economist Education is a great way to stay ahead in your career, and I have a special offer to get you started. You can get 15% off any course from Economist Education, only available by going to our exclusive URL, education.economist.com slash afterhours, and enter my promo code afterhours at registration. This offer ends on March 31st, so don't wait. For 15% off, go now to education.economist.com slash afterhours and use promo code afterhours at registration.